0: NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
2: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co anchor along with Romaine Bostick and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week started with quite the rally. Stocks gained on early data from Pfizer's COVID vaccine, showing that the shot has potentially 90% efficacy in preventing the coronavirus. The S&P 500 shot up to a two month high, and even EM finally got some love with emerging market stocks hitting their highest level since 2018. So we've dove into the sector with longtime EM expert, Paul McNamara, GAM investment director, and asked him what was driving EM overall? Investor sentiment or certain conditions when EM assets do particularly well.
3: It it looks a lot like uh, pure pure sentiment, um, exuberance, but, statistically if if you look at it uh, em is a growth asset class especially non us growth so the I- ideal conditions for em are growth everywhere but stronger um, outside the us because when the us is leading you tend to have a strong dollar and that's a headwind for em but uh, yeah in a word growth so that's I mean- that's the big driver
4: So, Paul, when we talk about uh, the growth here and some of the optimism that people do seem to have for EM right now, should I just sort of look at it from the perspective of sort of global economic growth goes up, that benefits EM, and then worry about the interest rate and dollar environment
3: later? Um, I think that's, you know, with a few caveats, that's right. Uh, I mean, growth is good. I mean, the U.S. election is important because a big chunk of EM is a play on globalization. The... uh, Yeah, look, I I don't know if we're allowed to call them the outgoing administration yet, was very anti-globalization, anti-trade. So sort of clearing that off is good for certain markets. I think in particular Mexico and much of Asia, and then that has a knock on to the commodity exporters. Uh, But clearly, you know, the, the impact of the coronavirus everywhere has been very negative of growth. Uh, So it's been uh, a huge negative uh, for EM. Uh, I do think it's actually less to do with the vaccine today in the fact that everybody hates EM at the moment. There's a lot of shorts. There's a lot of tourist money short EM. And when people start becoming Mm. realising actually maybe there's a point to risk assets, they cover their shorts rather than look for interesting things to invest in. So I think that's why EM's done particularly well today.
5: Mm. I love your cynical perspective talk to us about the US dollar pool and how much th- that factors into it I mean it's been a story of weakness but how much weaker does it get
3: well I mean it's it's it, it, it's been a bit of a bastard for us really uh, because usually you know as a rule of thumb if the dollar strengthens one percent against the majors it, it goes up about 1.4 1.5 percent against against EM and the same in the other direction so it was it was very simple for us a weak dollar environment is good for em a strong dollar environment is bad for EM, and this has really been the first year in a long time that's that's kind of broken down. Um, you know, there's politics. There's you know, the the virus has changed a lot of things. You've actually had the the Europeans doing something about growth, which is you know almost something of a black swan. Um, so you know, the the very the, the calculus has changed a little bit. But I think, as a rule of thumb, you could do a lot worse than assuming what's good for the dollar is bad for EM. But really, uh, a lot of that is about the the relation between growth in the US and growth everywhere else and yeah. you know when the US is the only pole for growth that's a strong dollar and that's when EM tends to struggle
2: you know looking at this year overall this whole crisis I'm curious if what, what some of the lessons learned are and, and in particular we saw various emerging markets engage in fiscal stimulus we saw various emerging markets in, uh, central banks engaged in what we might call quantitative easing or buying of government debt. Has this taught us, perhaps, that uh, emerging markets have more fiscal and monetary flexibility or capacity, counter-cyclical capacity, than, may, uh, than perhaps had been appreciated? Does that tell us something about the future of uh, this asset class?
3: I think certainly some emerging markets do. Uh, I mean, at the extremes, um, I don't think anybody would have expected, say, Argentina to be able to- uh, to carry out anything vaguely resembling sure. uh, QE, they've increased their government budget deficit uh, by about four and a half, five percent of GDP, and they've got inflation at 37 percent and a currency crisis and all that. Whereas places like South Africa, which you wouldn't have thought of as kind of paragons of stability, have increased their budget deficits by around 12 percent of GDP, and actually not done nearly as badly, even though neither has has. Embarked on, on um, you know, it's not the case that emerging markets have the same degree of flexibility as some of the reserve uh, currency issuers. But uh, and and we have seen that even as interest rates in EM have come down very hard, bond yields haven't. So you've got these very steep yield curves in emerging bond markets. Uh, but I think overall, you know, certainly, you know, at the better end of the spectrum, the Polands, the Chiles, uh, Thailand have a lot more flexibility and in a lot of ways look a lot more uh, DM than than EM.
4: I am curious about some of the decoupling that we saw, I guess it kind of started prior to the COVID crisis, where you saw some of the EM banks not necessarily following uh, the Fed's lead in the way that they would have done in the past. And I'm wondering, uh, is there sort of a viable argument to be made that some of these banks don't necessarily need to follow the Fed lockstep?
3: Uh, you mean central banks? Yeah, central um, banks. I, I think they've been they they have cut rates. I mean, I think the big breakthrough for em over the last decade or so is that they can now conduct monetary policy. So if you go into a recession, you slash interest rates, and okay, your currency drops, but that's not the end of the world because not all the debt is in is in. Uh, dollars anymore. Uh, I mean, the the central banks which haven't been able to cut rates are generally at the weaker end of the spectrum. So you know, sort of Turkey has managed to find itself in a hiking cycle in the middle of the biggest of the biggest recession. But actually, I think you know that that even places like Brazil or you know, or to a lesser extent Russia, which we think have been pushing their luck in terms of monetary easing so far, have managed to get away with it. Uh, you know, that I, I I I kind of lean more to. The point joe was making that you know that em responds to a recession in a much more similar way uh, to dm does than it used to
2: yeah huge day for the lira and i'm used to just looking up every day and the lira falling today was an exception the lira gained about five percent there you see of course it's flipped to lower is higher because it's dollar lira and something about the president's son leaving i don't i'm always a little confused but it was up
4: well, he, well, he's more than just a son-in-law. His uh, economies are. Right. And, uh, so I guess some concerns here about uh, the direction of monetary policy and how actually this might actually uh, be good, I guess, potentially for the lira, Joe. I mean, you check it every morning, so... Yeah. Keep it I check it first thing every morning, <laughs> Maybe every so... for
5: 45 minutes now. That could be your new one. <laughs>
4: including with... it at night while
2: I'm <laughs> sleeping. Paul, what's going on? Um,
3: there's two things going on in Turkey. I mean, Tur- Turkey is in quite a vulnerable situation. It's got a, it's got a lot of foreign debt. Uh, very, very little in uh, foreign exchange reserves. An awful lot of those foreign exchange reserves are committed elsewhere. They owe them to the domestic banks. You know, it's the sort of country uh, that could get itself into trouble, and that trouble gets much worse. The currency weakens because the that lack of availability of foreign exchange becomes a problem. Um, they're also a big uh, tourism economy, and if you go through casualties of uh, of the coronavirus, obviously right. tourism is a, is a is a is a very big part of that. Uh, so you know, to, to a great extent, they've been kind of hit by a truck this year. The problem they've had is the. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, allegedly a parliamentary constitutional system, blah, 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 but it, it's, it's effectively run by the president. And, you know, I think one of the lessons of 2020 has been, if you're president, don't put your son-in-law in charge of anything important. <laughs> uh, in Turkey, uh, Barat al-Bayrak al- was the, uh, was the finance minister, you know, very, um, ill-regarded in the markets. Uh, you know, his, his conference call, his, his conference calls with the markets went very badly. Um, you know, there was a famous incident, I think, at the IMF, uh, you know, when he demanded the identity of somebody who, uh, you know, kind of in quite a threatening way, the identity of somebody who asked him a question he didn't like. You know, the, 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 the approach went very badly. Recently, he'd been about What a good thing it was to have a competitive lira, which is of course gets interpreted as well. You know, let it fall. So the fact that he was removed yesterday, after the uh, the, 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 the the head of the central bank was removed on Friday night, uh, the market has taken that as a sign that we're going to see a U-turn, or at least that there's a high chance of a U-turn in Turkish policy, because they've they've had to carry out effectively a you know uh, a, a stealth tightening where the headline rate interest rate. The, the, the central bank policy rate has risen by 2%, and that's what they tell the president. But the effective rate, I mean if you look at the they publish an average weighted cost of funding for the banks, and that's up by 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 seven percent. So so effectively they've tightened by seven percent while telling the president they've tightened by by two. Um <laughs> uh, it's so it's seen as a step away from that regime. You know, that that there's a recognition that yes, Turkey has taken a huge blow from the coronavirus, from the collapse in tourism. Uh, but that blow is going to—you ha- know—there right. is a huge blow to to growth coming, and mm. you know, and actually they're going to tighten policy and somehow see their way see their way through it.
5: Paul, another country that's trying to reverse policy that's also entangled with the IMF as well is Argentina. What are you making of that particular story right now?
3: Well, I mean, Argentina obviously has just restructured its debt, and the the debt, I think. Oh, you know, since it was issued in September, dropped by about 40%. Has clawed back about a, 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 a third of that since. I mean, it, it, it's really at the at the extreme end of, of how emerging markets function these days. Uh, I think the key there is that that local people, you know, do not trust uh, the peso. And it's, you know, and whether or not you believe in modern monetary theory or whether you believe the various uh, interpretations of more mainstream theory, you know, that there are a, a wide variety of circumstances in which the Fed or the Bank of England or the National Bank of Poland or whoever can can, uh, use the the central bank to fund government expansion, it's very clear that Argentina's habit of doing that has has kind of reached reached exhaustion. So, it's another country with a lot less flexibility than other places. And one of the things that the new government has agreed to, in addition to restructuring the debt, is to, you know, it's placed new limits on the amount of BCRA, uh, of central bank financing for the government. But it's, you know, it's a country in, in huge difficulty, you know, and when we see a private sector shutdown, as we've seen everywhere, EM and DM this year, being a country like Argentina, where you can't, you know, really use the monetary lever, leaves it in a very, very difficult situation.
2: This week, we also took a look at the increasing pressure on big tech. We started to see this rotation away from tech growth stocks that were favorites during the first wave of the pandemic. On Monday and Tuesday, the NASDAQ posted some of its worst relative two-day performance in a long time. This coming as tech regulation is tightening across the globe from China to the EU to right here in the US, Silicon Valley could be met with a different attitude than the last time Joe Biden was in the White House. In the Obama years, Democrats lauded Silicon Valley as a driver of innovation. President-elect Joe Biden presenting a different tone this time around. So we spoke about it all with Gigi Stone. She's currently the Distinguished Fellow at Georgetown Law Institute for Technology Law and Policy. Before that, she was a counselor for the FCC. And we started by asking her what the relationship would be like between big tech and the Biden administration.
1: I think it's going to be very different. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the Obama administration was very tight with Google in particular, also with some of the other big tech companies. But those companies weren't what they are today. And that is extremely big, extremely powerful, and willing to use that power in a way that's anti-competitive uh, in a way that um, you know sometimes promotes inf- uh, misinformation and hate speech and violent speech, and you know these companies collect so much data from us that not only is our privacy being compromised, it just cements their power even more. So I don't. You're not going to see this relationship that the Obama administration had with tech. I think the folks uh, who are going to be working for Joe Biden are going to be much more skeptical and more willing. Uh, To act in a more regulatory power and use antitrust law, advocate for strengthening antitrust law because that needs to happen, but also use antitrust law in order to go after these companies.
5: Let's talk about. How you can use the law, because in the EU we've seen once again Margaret Vestier waving her her authority, her clout, is going after Amazon, already gone after Google. But many have said, look, it's all very well her leading the charge here, and we did get GDPR, for example, in terms of data privacy. But the big fines aren't that big when these companies are so extraordinarily large. It's notable that Mark Zuckerberg has actually time and again sort of said, sure, regulate me. I'm, I, I like, you know, look at GDPR in Europe, and he's talking about you know, Section 230 being reformed. What sort of regulation actually would work from your perspective,
1: Gigi? Look, I think the first thing that needs to happen is we need to have a national consumer privacy and data security bill. People should be able to control what data, what of their personal data they give to these companies and what they don't. And right now we don't have that law. I think that's that's job number one. Job number two, in my opinion, is we've got to strengthen the antitrust laws because... After years of court decisions, they're essentially rendered a nullity, and particularly when it comes to the tech companies, they're very powerless. So while I was supportive of the of the Google case that was brought by the Department of Justice, it's such a weak case. I don't believe that. I believe that Google will prevail in that case. And then finally, we do need to look at Section 230 and whether it needs to be modernized. Again, this is the law that uh, gives companies like Google and Facebook, but also companies like Wikimedia and Reddit and uh, immunity from, from content that third parties, you know, that customers post, and also allows them to take down or tag content. It's a very important law, but it may need some updating. But the thing for me that I think is really, really important is that we can't harm the small companies that rely on Section 230 in the effort to go after the big companies.
4: Yeah, this is uh, kind of the dilemma out there, because a lot of the regulations, uh, the proposed regulations, as to today and legislation out there um, would, I guess, to a certain extent, hamstring some of the larger companies, but it would pretty much decimate uh, some of the smaller companies and any new company looking to come uh, to market and be a competitor here. So how do you balance those two, this idea of reining in big tech in a way that doesn't maybe actually sort of inadvertently create additional antitrust issues?
1: Well, look, I do think that a lot of the conversation around Section 230 from both Republicans and Democrats, when you hear them talk, when you actually listen to them talk about this, it's about constraining the power of the companies. They've gotten too big, they've gotten too powerful, and again, they've used that power to harm competition, to keep out certain voices. So I think what you have to do is deal with the power problem. And here in the U.S., the House Antitrust Subcommittee Uh, run by Representative Cicilline, put out a 450-page report that has a whole bunch of prescriptions for dealing with the competition problem. Uh, The question is, will Republicans sign on to it? They they like to complain about the companies. They say that there's conservative bias, which does not exist. That's been proven time and again. But will they get on the the train that uh, is going to leave the station in the House of Representatives that's going to look to constrain the power? antitrust law through regulatory measures possibly through structural measures like breaking up the companies uh will they get on that train because if we do have divided government and it's looking like that's going to be the case i think it's going to be very very hard to find a remedy that both parties can agree upon
2: do you actually think that's a possibility breaking them up i mean these antitrust cases come up every once in a while and then in the end it always looks like there's something minor, even like the the, the European ones, that get a lot of attention and they make some tweak and the business models thrive and go on. Could you actually see something profound uh, in terms of the breakup of some of these in the cards?
1: Well, I think people have to realize how long it takes to break up a company. It took eight years to break up AT&T and it wanted right. to be broken up. I'm not sure that's the first line of attack. I would prefer to actually see a regulatory agency Kind of like the fcc but for online platforms you know you have these companies that are so critical to the economy they're so important to the public discourse right you know they're they're used every single day by hundreds of you know by billions of people around the world why is there not a regulatory agency that oversees their privacy practices that oversees their you know whether they discriminate against you know smaller companies or not that you know oversees some of the content moderation practices now remember in the united states we have a first amendment so the government can't you know, easily say, you know, we're making you take down this or we're making you leave that up, which is another division between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats want the platforms to take more down. Republicans want them to leave more content up. But setting that aside, why don't we have a regulatory agency that oversees these incredibly powerful companies? We have one, the one I used to work for, the FCC, that oversees Comcast and AT&T and Verizon, and, and media companies like Fox and Disney, why don't we have one for right. Google and Facebook and Twitter? Do
5: you look back at your time on FCC and think, could have done this differently?
1: Uh, as far as this is concerned, no. I mean, the FCC was uh, was formed to regulate access to networks. So things like the broadcast networks and the cable, you know, uh, cable industry and the broadband industry and the telephone industry. It was not intended to regulate companies like these. And, uh, you know, uh, I broad FCC authority when it comes to regulating the things content intended to regulate, but not when it comes to regulating the, the companies that ride on the pipes. The FCC regulates pipes. Hmm. It doesn't regulate content, and it shouldn't regulate content. Hmm.
6: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work And this week, we also took a look at the second surge in COVID
2: cases and how investors should prepare their portfolios. One big theme people are looking for in the US is the reflation trade. So we discussed it with John Turek, the author of the Cheap Convexity blog, and started by asking him about how investors should think about these crosswinds. And how do you think about a situation which the short term is not looking good, but perhaps there is a light at the end of the tunnel?
7: Right, it is very interesting in the sense that there seems to be this path and destination, the path being that there's likely to be, you know, a more difficult few weeks in terms of the virus and mitigation measures taken um, as we're kind of in this, you know, slight fiscal impasse in the U.S., while in the longer term, uh, we know a vaccine's coming and there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, But one of the things I think about in trying to be maybe a bit more upbeat um, is that I think there are two I think the reflation trade is still the bigger trade, but I think post-election and post-vaccine news, it's kind of, it's become a bit more differentiated. It's, and there's two aspects to it, and I guess we can get into that. All right, what are the two aspects? So I think now going into the reflation trade, because pre the election and pre the vaccine news, there was reflation was kind of this one part thing, uh, where whatever good news there was, that would kind of feed into a weaker dollar, higher stocks. Uh, marginally steeper yield curve. And now what I think is happening is that there is there is a now because we're not in a blue wave is that there is a there's a vaccine reflation and then there's a fiscal reflation. And a vaccine reflation is much more of a traditional cyclical recovery where you have um, where you have, you know, capital expenditure, um, restocking of inventories where growth kind of gets off the mat and we start to see we're in the early parts of a cycle. And that's you know that's traditionally uh, good for the global economy, and it kind of we we peter out. And fiscal, on the other hand, is much more in terms of transfer payments and consumption and how that kind of mm. the and and I think really it's we've become it an either or in that sense because now the market is discounting that the Republicans will you know limit how much fiscal we can do in a Biden administration. Um, it's it's a vaccine has a fiscal cost to it. Um, And I think that's kind of why we've had this um, we've had this kind of rise in real yields as the market kind of removes some policy tail based on, you know, a faster maybe than expected um, and better results from the vaccine.
5: John, I'm interested in sort of where you think ultimately the economy will recalibrate itself, because Mm. when you look back at history, it says actually you have pain, you have scar tissue, the economy doesn't tend to go back to exactly where it was previously in the recession for several years to come. So you sort of get an L shape and we don't get this V ever, this V is shorter. But this wasn't a normal kind of, obviously, instigated recession. Do you think once we get the full bounce back, once we do get the bounce back, the, the vaccine, that we will go higher than where we were previously? Or what do you see?
7: I think it's a a great question. I mean, Christine Lagarde in the ECB was kind of talking about this today about like what the hysteresis or the scarring will be um, from this from this uh, recession. And I think it kind of I think it largely depends on how bolted it is by fiscal expansion. I think if we have a more traditional recovery in the sense of that a vaccine does lead to like an opening up of animal spirits. And we have this, you know, pickup in capital expenditure and, and restock inventories, and all those positive tails. Um, I think that only I think that peters out because I think what we're seeing is the the more positive, and more, uh, more marginally more influential aspect of policy is getting is getting people with a lot of marginal propensity to consume, um, basically uh, giving them juice. And I think we've seen that from the the CARES Act and that'll have that'll get us through a lot of what, you know, hysteresis would have been from relative to the size of the shock is that household balance sheets are going to be relatively strong coming out of a recession, which is highly unusual, of course. So I actually think that I think that this recovery could be uh, very different than the post 2008, Hmm. 2009 one in that sense.
4: So, I mean, we're focusing a lot here on, on the U.S. recovery, of course, the European recovery. Uh, we've actually started to see a, a pretty substantial recovery over in Asia, particularly out of China and some of the other nations that are in its orbit there. What are they doing right that maybe the U.S. and other nations could take some cues from?
7: Right. Well, I think, I think Asia is in this interesting period where it's had this dual benefit of having a better handicap of the virus, and at the same time, being more as this as the global economy is kind of transitioned into goods only at the expense of services because you can't really do that much, um, Asia's de- definitely picked up the slack, and that's kind of why we have these massive current account uh, numbers coming out of China because global trade becomes completely goods focused instead of service focused, and Asia, which has become a marginal tourist, uh, can't really go to places like Europe or the U.S. So I think Asia's had this dual tail. Um, and I think that, you know, it's being it's being catalyzed by some interesting policy choices as in like, you know, there is a bigger fiscal impulse coming from places like Korea and China, which doesn't have a big, a big policy impulse is doing a lot of structural things that are pretty interesting in terms of dual circulation, um, kind of creating a, a, a variation of the carry trade with higher real interest rates relative to the world as they open up their bond market and also offering a competitive tech sector which the u.s really hasn't the nasdaq it hasn't had as an asset class you hmm. know for the last 10 years
2: you know looking ahead i mean you mentioned the cares act and of course europe moving forward on its fiscal stimulus plans but we know that the political will to spend more money tends to dissipate pretty fast after crises and we could be in a position in which there's no political will to spend in the u.s and europe and uh, central banks are basically uh, at zero, at, at zerp, without any real, uh, you know, kind of maxed out. What does that post-crisis environment look like, in which there's no obvious juice left from the central banks and uh, no obvious uh, spending, spending capacity or desire to spend further?
7: Right. I mean, I think that becomes a, you get into the 2009 cycle where it's a, it's a it's a dollar up, tech outperform type of environment. But I would I would caution that I think that there's reason to be skeptical of fiscal, especially post uh, the US election. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that I don't think fiscal is going to zero, right? I think mm. that yes, we are off a fiscal cliff. I still think there is there is will and capacity to do some fiscal variation. And while the size may not be of the magnitudes of things like the Heroes Act that we were kind of hoping as a market that we would, you know, kind of have, and then you'd have the vaccine. Plus a three and a half trillion dollar fiscal expansion, and then you have real juice. But I think that it's not going to go to zero, and and I don't think it's a 2010, 2011, 2012 Tea Party dynamic. Um, and I think we're seeing this even in Europe, where yes, they reinstituted mitigation measures, but it was also coupled with, you know, uh, extensions of, of of job loss schemes and 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 fiscal uh, and fiscal buffers. So. I don't think that even though it would be net-net, I think it would kind of create a similar recovery dynamic of slow, meager, right. uh, nominal mm-hmm. growth. It's not going to be the same as the 2009-2010 recovery.
5: John, how do you trade this then?
7: Um, I think one of the interesting things about this, these two different types of reflations, the vaccine reflation or the fiscal reflation, is that at the margin they're both dollar negative. The sick as mm. the reflation from the vaccine side has the cyclical tailwinds as we see as the as the global economy gets better. And then from the fiscal side, it's we've seen how it works kind of through the trade deficit where the US has more to spend and then it spends it abroad. And I think really so you have that either or in the dollar and then the dream scenario for dollar weakness is when if you have if you get both, yeah. right? If you get a big fiscal expansion and you have this natural cyclical recovery. So I think the asymmetries are still towards more dollar equals.
6: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work
2: Thursday showed it was not so fast on that rotation, as Disney earnings showed consumers are still likely to be on their couch rather than making a trip out. Disney saw a surge in Disney Plus subscribers with nearly 74 million. But at the same time, the company saw a 61% year-over-year dip in its parks and consumer products revenue, and a 52% dip in its studio revenue as we avoid movie theaters. The numbers are backward-looking, but the challenges remain the same in the here and now. And this came as the first Caribbean cruise since the pandemic ended early and had to return to shore after passengers got preliminary positive test results for COVID-19. So we dove into what's going on with consumer behavior with Robin Farley, a consumer cyclical analyst at UBS, and started by asking her if this COVID cruise was proof of trouble for the industry or proof that demand was not going away anytime soon.
0: Sure. So, so a couple of things. I think you know the bigger issue for Carnival and Royal and Norwegian is that they're you know not not allowed to operate right now by the CDC. So, I know uh, there was another cruise line that that had that case, is it, and that those aren't necessarily the protocols that the major cruise lines will be following when they're allowed to start sailing again from the U.S. But I think the key thing here too is. There, there was reportedly a case. Right, I don't know how much information has actually been confirmed, but the idea is not that that there won't be this virus on ships. It's it's going, it's everywhere in society. Right, it's 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 in every state, um, and and there will be some cases. The question is, can you keep it from spreading? And if somebody has it. Can you um, get them the care that they need? The same concerns that you would have on land, right? So I don't think there's an expectation that that there's a world in which that doesn't exist at the moment, you know, anywhere. But there is demand, right, for for, uh, for cruises. I I do think that's clear.
5: Extraordinary, though, that you get on a cruise and you immediately, all guests and non-essential crew are quarantining. I guess you have to brace yourself for that, but it's a very sad state.
0: I don't think that those are the protocols that the the major cruise lines Carnival, Royal Norwegian, and their brands will be following. Mm. We we can see in Europe some examples where they uh, cruising was allowed to restart in Italy and Germany, including some brands um, owned by by Carnival and Royal. And uh, when a case would occur or be found, that person um, would be isolated, and it and it did not affect in in most cases uh, others on the ship. So mm. so it doesn't. I don't think that um, that you know the goal is not to uh, have everybody on the ship quarantine if, if there's a case right it's just again the same thing that that we do yeah. in society now if someone has they quarantine Work goes on, school goes on, all of those other activities go on, and, and that'll be the same with vacationing.
4: Yeah, so I mean, with regards to cruise, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, there's obviously a risk proposition with uh, getting on a cruise and being uh, stuck out at sea for ho- however many days. There are other elements, though, of the, uh, I guess, the travel and leisure space, where you, whether you're talking about theme parks, uh, casinos, other places where maybe I would think people would feel more comfortable going, knowing that they're only going to be there for a couple hours and can kind of come go and uh, go and come freely do you think that that part of the travel and leisure segment could rebound faster than say something like cruise lines
0: well I mean we are seeing things like regional gaming where revenues have um, have come back but but I think when you're if you're talking about a cruise line a comparable thing would be kind of a hotel stay somewhere yeah. right for multiple days right because some of those other things aren't really substitutes for going on vacation and and the cruise lines the protocol is going to be testing everybody at boarding and I don't know of another business that does that that tests everyone before they go into a restaurant or tests everybody before they go into a hotel so when the cruise lines that are under jurisdiction of the see see here sailing out of the U.S., which is which is not the case uh, that was being talked about earlier. Um, that will be that will be testing everybody before they enter. Which it, it, you know, it, in some ways, may make some people feel that that's a safer. That that is uh, an environment where everyone's been tested. Which again, I don't think there's you know any any place, school or work where that's happening. Um, you know, elsewhere. Right. Um, so now there you know there's a difference between the hotels where there's actually a lot of business travel and and even um, it, you know it, that's a function of probably other things going on in the economy before business travel comes back. But we saw leisure demand through the summer. And that's actually what helped the hotels through the summer was leisure demand coming back. The cruise lines of course are pure leisure travel. So when they are allowed to restart, the only thing they need is is for that leisure demand to come back. And with business travel, you know, at, at this point at least, uh vacations are not going to be replaced by right. a Zoom. Right. People are going to take vacations, business travel. um, You know, it will take a Mm. a, a bit longer to come back, as we're seeing, um, you know, compared to leisure travel in the summer at hotels.
2: So at some point, presumably there's going to be a vaccine. It'll be widely distributed. And one day, COVID, we don't know when will be a thing of the past. Are there any areas of the companies that you cover for whom in the meantime there's credit concern about whether they have the balance sheet buffer to get to that end point?
0: Sure. So so I would say uh, that for the major hotel companies and for the cruise lines, they've all uh, raised a lot of liquidity. So the cruise lines can generally get to early 2022 in a scenario with zero revenues, which that's not our expectation that that's what it's going to be. But they do have liquidity despite burning um, a couple hundred million a month. And in, in, in most cases for the cruise lines, they do have that liquidity. Now, that's going to make it tough the equity value. If we say that that demand would go back to where it was tomorrow, and profitability would go back to where it was tomorrow, they're going to have to live with the the debt they've borrowed and the share dilution from having raised that. Right. So there's still there's still um, that doesn't mean there's not upside in the stocks from these levels, but. But if demand went back to January magically, um, the stock values certainly won't. And that's that's definitely an issue for the cruise lines because they've had to do a lot of that capital raising. Um, for hotel companies like uh, Hilton and Marriott, they have liquidity. I, I think uh, Marriott has something like four years of liquidity. Hilton has uh, over two years of liquidity. So they'll, they'll be here. And those uh, are capital light businesses, right? Hilton and Marriott kind of rent their brands out to hotel owners. So they'll, they'll collect their revenue and they don't have uh, the asset intensive nature that that the cruise lines do Um, so so that that asset light model in a downturn like this is is certainly um certainly a healthier model just to be clear to our
5: viewers and you have been right the pointing out this is a sea dream one uh, voyage that we've been discussing that had been sent back to barbados a caribbean voyage and actually only about 50 or so passengers on board the crew was actually larger robin is there anyone that's managed to pivot really rather well in this? Because we started this whole conversation off by talking about Disney, which has managed to really double down on streaming and perhaps shy away, be able to perform and focus on that as perhaps other parts of the business doesn't do so well. I think a Marriott, which has done, sort of taken on Airbnb. We've looked at Accor hotels before that had bought One Fine Stay. Some of these companies were set for a new dawn, a new era. How have companies pivoted and perhaps looked for opportunities? in amid what is a dark, dark cloud of COVID.
0: Sure. So, um, so for Marriott and Hilton, they're, they're fantastic companies. They have fantastic brands, but seventy percent of their room nights are from business travel, and so there's that's just going to take time to come back, and, and that's not something they can do. Um, a smaller company, Choice Hotels, actually we have a buy on, is two thirds leisure travel, and they have brands like Econo Lodge and Roadway and Comfort Inn, and that's what you know people are getting on the road and doing domestic uh, leisure travel, and so they're actually uh, poised. to from from that uh, choice hotels, and they're a, a franchisor. But I do think looking ahead, and I think that's really your question is about where does this go over the long term? I think companies like Hilton and Marriott, we are going to see them making some changes. Uh, so that even when, when business travel does return, um, that maybe ch- the, check-in, um, the check-in experience is going to be done at a kiosk and then you have keyless hmm. entry to your room and it's going to reduce the interaction. And, and that's also, of course, going to save some money, too. Hmm. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, during your stay, you, you know, they'll change over a room, but you might not get daily housekeeping during your stay. And again, it's going to be presented as... You know, that's to keep, your, to keep others out of your room, but also there, there's a cost-saving um, element to that as well. So I think we will see some changes um, with, with that to keep expenses down and to minimize some interactions. And I think some of those things will, will stay with us even after the pandemic has, has passed.
2: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.